Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Beyond the Cover video edition here. We are so pleased to be joined by author Andy Weir. Of course, you know him from the Martian fame, along with his last book, Artemis. And he is here to talk to you today about his latest book coming out, Project Hail Mary. Uh, we want to remind everybody, of course, that all of our videos now and our podcast are brought to you by Suspense Magazine. So make sure you visit suspensemagazine.com. And don't forget about our anthology, Nothing Good Happens After Midnight with Jeffrey Deaver, amongst many other people. So, Andy... Hey, thank you so much for coming on, man. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It's great yeah. to be able to talk to you for the first time uh, on the show and now see you. So this is like the first you know, video and talk. I want to, this is, this is awesome. Um, <laughs> Here we are. Run now, while you can, Andy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you, 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 you can put Kermit up if you want to, but you know, we'll still do that. <laughs> so, so your book here, Project Hail Mary uh, is your latest book. And of course, it's, you know, it, it, it goes with, uh, you know, Ryland Grace, who is a sole survivor. He is, he's your character. He's your main guy. Give us a little tidbit about Project Hail Mary, and then we'll start getting to a little of the nuances, uh, you know, about your characters and things like that. Okay. Well, um, our protagonist, Ryland Grace, uh, wakes up uh, in a medical bed. He's clearly been in a coma of some kind. He has no memory of who he is. He doesn't even know his name's Ryland Grace. He has no memory of who he is, where he is, or why he's there. Um, he pretty quickly realizes he's aboard a spaceship. And um, as his memories start coming back to him, he realizes he's the sole survivor on a mission, a desperate mission to save humanity from extinction. So, you know, no pressure. <laughs> well, one of the things they tell writers is never open a book with someone waking up. And uh, you broke that rule immediately. <laughs> I know. It's awesome. It's like, That's hey, how Alien started. Not only that, I start, I start a book with someone waking up. I also go for the maximum trope of amnesia, right? right. The, the, the trope-tacular amnesia. And I always tell people, um, by the way, uh, one more thing. I always tell aspiring writers, don't use flashbacks. Flashbacks are a crutch for weak writers. And this book is like half flashback. It's like... <laughs> So I'm, I'm basically a big old hypocrite is what we're getting at here. Um, yeah, but the, basically the story takes place like there's stuff that happens on Earth that, you know, you get to see the, the looming crisis that's threatening humanity. And then but the bulk of the book is, is Ryland in space trying to find a solution to that problem. And if I told the book serially, um, it would have been really weird because the first third or so of the book would be these scenes that are skimming through time. It's like, okay, boom, this is here. And then boom, this is like two years later and then boom, boom, boom. And then um, once the, the mission launched, you would never see any of those characters again. And yeah, then, that'd be weird. Yeah. That'd yeah. Be weird. It would just not work. So I decided to go with the uh, flashback thing, which meant I went with the amnesia thing so that he could be discovering it. It puts the reader in his his you know point of view. He's discovering it along with the reader, and yeah, yeah. I'm basically a big old hack. That's what I'm getting at. <laughs> well, one well, of the you're things. A hack, I'll oh, thanks. <laughs> one of the things I love about your work is um, you have characters that uh, well, as Matt Damon said in the movie, they science the shit up. That's right. So, um, and in this particular case, you have your character discovering where he is by doing a whole bunch of science stuff <laughs> yeah he uh it's not too much of a spoiler this is all first chapter stuff where he he says like that's weird like everything feels heavier than it should be 
and he starts dropping a pen or whatever and he's like that seems to be falling too fast and then he does these experiments with a pendulum and calculates what gravity must be and he's like oh gravity's too high um <laughs> there's really no way to do that other than either being in a really big centrifuge or being aboard a spaceship <laughs> Now, the thing That's with funny. your books, of course, I remember reading uh, an interview that you did about the Martian way back when, and it took you so long to write that because you wanted to make sure you got everything as perfect as you possibly could. Yep. And, you know, Artemis came out in 2017, and now, you know, it's 2021, you got Project Hail Mary. So you're basically what? The Eric Larson of space stories, because you take <laughs> and you do the research so meticulously to make sure that you get things right. How hard is that for you? I mean, because it's just so much because, I mean, it's a four-year process for when you're starting and researching and getting the book out. That's hard. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it is hard, but it's like, I really enjoy it. It's like my favorite part of, of the whole process is the research. So it's not like it's a lot of work for me. Is I mean, it, it is it surprises a, you? You What's get that? Some surprises along the way. Is that why? Oh, you like absolutely. It? Yeah, um, yeah I, I learned a lot about. Uh, well, Project Hail Mary touches on all sorts of random directions of science. There's biology, um, relativity, like relativistic space travel, time dilation, um, quantum physics, like how neutrinos work, and uh, stellar physics, like how stars work, how planetary atmospheres are affected by things. So I ended up going down many, many rabbit holes. Um, and, you know, I just, I really had a great time with it though. So I'm that kind of nerd. I wish I could just do the research for a novel and present some sort of write-up and then people would give me big piles of money for that without me having to write a story. But that's, I guess, not how things work. No, no, yeah. Yeah, nonfiction <laughs> books don't make as much as The Martian. <laughs> <Yeah>. True. <laughs> um, I, I was going to say, uh, Michio Kaku said that it would um, cost less to actually go to Mars than to make the movie The Martian, but I digress. <laughs> <laughs> well, it did. Um, India, like shortly after the Martian, the Martian's budget was 110 million, 111 million for the film. And India sent a probe to Mars, a satellite that orbited Mars for about 70 million a few years later. That's However, true. unrelated to that, just because I'm a Mars dork, I, I kind of dispute India's numbers on that. They said, oh, hey, we only spent 70 million, you know, dollars worth of, you know, uh, they, they stated it in, in, in rupees, but you know, we only spent this much money. And it's like, yeah, but they also heavily used resources from the Indian Army and Navy that they didn't like calculate. It's close. Yeah, calculate yeah, on that. Uh, yeah. Well, it's like, okay, you know, it's like they used like, you know, just they, they used all sorts of resources from their armed forces for tracking and communication and, and, and facilities and stuff. And they said, oh, that costs zero. But of course, it doesn't cost zero. No. <laughs> Part of their military budget. So right. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> um, exactly. Who knows? We'll, we'll talk about the film and uh, the Martian in a minute. But I'm curious. One of the things I love about your work is you make science interesting and accessible, which... I've seen other writers not able to do that whatsoever. I feel like it goes way over my head. So how do you make it so interesting and accessible? Um, I sleep into your, I, I sneak into your house at night when you're <laughs> sleeping and I whisper things into your ear so that you understand. That's you? It. Yeah. That explains and, a lot. Honey, and then I figure, it's Andy Weir that's whispering in your ear yeah. at night, not me. And I figure since I'm doing a service, I could take 
you know, some of your silverware or whatever. It's not a big oh, deal. It's sure. just equivalent exchange. No, uh, just one thing I've found is that, um, you know, there's a lot of exposition in my stories about science and stuff. And that's no big surprise. And I, I try to remember, okay, just because I'm really interested in all this science stuff doesn't mean the reader is. So I try to tell just the minimum amount of information they need to know to understand the plot that's happening. And um, that way I try not to overwhelm them. And the other tippy top secret that only me and a million other authors know is if you're funny, they will forgive you any amount of exposition. If you're making the reader laugh, then they'll just keep on reading and they'll learn whatever, <laughs> whatever it takes along the way. Cool. So, so you've done the research and you've gotten all this. Now you compile it and you're like, okay, I got a plot. I'm going to get a story. And you're like, now I need a character. Now I need yeah. to put somebody behind this. So That's talk right. a little bit about your character creation because you've talked about your research. Now let's talk about the fixing it up of the story and the development of like Ryland and your characters, you know, are there certain personality traits that you like to have them, them, you know, do you outline them? Do you lay them out or do you kind of let them grow organically? Well, uh, it's, it's cool. You mentioned characters. So, uh, I consider like my biggest weakness as a writer to be characters, uh, depth, complexity, and like growth arc and stuff like that. Like you think about the Martian, you think of Mark Watney. What do you know about Mark Watney when you're done reading it? He's a guy who's smart, kind of funny, didn't want to die. That's it. That's all the depth he has. <laughs> and at the end of the book, he's exactly the same as the beginning. He doesn't undergo any growth or change in any way, even though he was stranded on Mars for like almost two years. Okay. But that's all right. It was a plot-driven story, but I still feel like, okay, I think I'm pretty good at coming up with interesting plots. If I had good characters, then my books would be that much better. <laughs> so for Artemis, my second book, also known as that other book by Andy Weir, um, uh, I, the main character is named Jazz Bashara. And for her, I decided, all right, I'm going to have some depth. And so like Mark Watney is kind of the idealized version of me. He has all the qualities that I have, uh, that I like about myself and they're magnified. So I'm kind of smart. He's very smart. I'm kind of funny. He's very funny and, and stuff like that, but he has none of my flaws, right? So he's the idealized distilled version of me or what I wish I could become. Jazz Bashara is the more realistic me. I, I said, I want complexity and depth and flaws. And so Jazz basically has the, it makes the kinds of mistakes that I would make that I was making back when I was her age. So mm. she's 26. And when I was 26, I was a screw up. And just like Jazz, it was like, okay, us theoretically very smart, yet still makes really bad life decisions and kind of her own worst enemy. And what I learned from that was that people had a tough time rooting for her. They're like, oh, I want to root for her, but she causes all of her own problems. And it's so frustrating for me to read that. And I have a tough time rooting for her. So then this time around, I said like, all right, for Ryland, I'm going to make a character. And this time I'm going to try to, I, I got to grow. So I'm going to make a character who is not just based on an aspect of me. I want to make a character that's unique, not, not just aspects of my own personality glued together. Um, and so that was very difficult for me because I, I'm not used to it. And so I actually wrote, it took me about five chapters for his personality to slowly develop. Like I knew the facts of his backstory. I'd already decided, oh, okay, he's a teacher and this, that, and the other thing. But I didn't really have a personality for him. And it just kind of slowly developed over five chapters. Then I'm like, okay, I've got, I've got 
I think I've got his personality down. I've got a character arc for him and everything. Now I'll go back and retrofit those chapters to match the personality that has developed. Um, and that worked, but it's also a little unnerving because you start off with this blank slate and I'm like, is this going to work? I don't know. But, uh, but yeah, I feel like this time I got some depth and complexity and growth. So I feel like I'm making progress on that overall goal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause, cause normally I always ask, well, I'm so sorry, Jeff, just real quick. No, 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 normally I always ask like, like from book to book, even as authors that have written 30, 40 books, is there something that you're challenging yourself for the next one? And it seems like character creation is one of those challenges that every book you're trying to, I'm going to challenge myself to make this character more in depth and more in depth. Yeah. So because like I feel challenge. like it's my biggest weakness as a writer. Yeah. And I think most people who read my stuff would agree. <laughs> <laughs> if that's a weakness, you're still doing pretty good. That's, that's not too bad because the stories are so complex and so, and so immersive that I think that they're, I think that they give you a pass on the character development because you submerge people in your plots so much that the plot is almost like a character. Well, thank you. But I would rather yeah. just also have really good characters. True. <laughs> well, I, kind of along that path, um, I want to talk about setting because in The Martian, you really feel like you're stranded on Mars with him. In Artemis, you really feel like you're on the moon and there's some really great scenes where it's like, wow, like they have the museum exhibits set up so you can see where Neil Armstrong landed, that sort of thing. Uh -huh. And again, you feel like you're on trap. a spaceship. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Talk about how you craft such great settings. Well, I guess I'm just always conscious of like where the story is taking place and I'm visualizing it in my mind. And one thing that really helps is if you think of things that other people didn't think of that, that aren't immediately obvious, but are kind of an outcrop of being in this environment. Like, so for instance, in in Artemis, one example, um, the city of Artemis is pressurized to about a fifth of an atmosphere um, and it's pure oxygen. So it's the same amount of oxygen in the air, <clears throat> but it's only a fifth of an atmosphere of pressure. Your body doesn't really do anything with all that nitrogen in our atmosphere, it just ignores it. So you can actually be perfectly comfortable and healthy in an atmosphere that's like 20%, 21% of Earth's pressure and 100% oxygen. And so that's how Artemis is. That way the holes don't have to be as thick and so on. That's what they did for the Apollo missions too. Um, but that means if you're at like 0.21 atmospheres, the boiling point of water is about 60 to 65 degrees Celsius. Like not hundred Celsius, because as you yeah. lower the atmospheric pressure, the boiling point of water goes down. Right. And so, something you don't think about. Right. And so, she, she mentions that coffee in Artemis, coffee and tea both kind of suck in Artemis because it can't properly steep because you literally cannot get water hotter than a certain temperature before it boils. So unless you use like a pressure cooker to make tea, you, you really can't get good tea there. And so it's that sort of like super, uh, the other thing is Arte Artemis food tastes like crap because uh, one of the reasons, um, What's the deal with airline food? One of the reasons airline food tastes bad is because the, the cabin pressure of the plane is reduced for the same reason as it is in Artemis and to make it so that the hull doesn't need to be so thick. And at a reduced pressure, for some reason, your taste buds don't work as well. And so really? that's why airline food 
kind of tends to be bland, it's not the food's fault, it's your tongue is not receiving the information quite as much. And so because of that, everyone in Artemis, their taste buds are just like not super reactive. So the food always kind of tastes like crap to them. Oh, and I even man. got now to, I got to apologize to American Airlines. That's right. And <laughs> that got me to thinking about, wouldn't it be cool? I, I, did, I didn't put it in the book, but I thought like, wouldn't it be cool if there was a restaurant called, you know, like Sea Level is the name of the restaurant and they serve good food. It's like five-star restaurant. And also it, they keep that part, they keep that restaurant is a pressure seal that is an earth-like environment of like one full atmosphere of nitrogen and oxygen. That way you go in there and you enjoy your meal because your tongue is working correctly. It does mean you'd need to spend like four hours decompressing to get back to Artemis after your meal, but. <laughs> That's a hell of a meal. That's what you call a night out on the town. <laughs> That's right. Well, what, what you do, I imagine for this restaurant is say like you go in, uh, you, you can pressurize up without too much problem. You don't, as long as you, you, in a couple of minutes in an airlock or something like that, you could go into this restaurant and then you have your meal and then you enjoy it. And then when it's time to start serving drinks and stuff like that, that's when they start like in your, in your dining, I figure each dining room, each, each table would basically be its own pressure vessel. And then in, and your pressure vessel, they start slowly reducing the temperature as they start at once you're done eating and they serve drinks and maybe have entertainment and stuff like that for you. And so that you can, you can taper back to Artemis's uh, pressure. Hmm. So kind of like what they did on, so it's almost like what they would have done on Total Recall. So they're able to pressurize all that stuff like on the Mars. So when they were in there, it kind of felt like earth. So nothing okay. really got messed up with them. Well, that, I mean, that was, Layman's I mean, that terms, was the whole pressure. I mean, that's what Artemis is doing that too. The whole city is yeah. pressurized. No. Anyway, so it's that, that sort of thing. Yeah. And I guess an example from Project Hail Mary would be he's in the ship and it's thrusting constantly at about 1.5 Gs. And, and, and he's figured out enough about the computers to know that there's this countdown saying when the engines are going to shut off. And so he's like, when those engines shut off, I'm going to suddenly be in zero G. And he's like, okay, uh, kind of prepare yourself for this. It's going to feel like you're falling, but you're not. And, you know, he goes into zero gene, immediately panics and throws up and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, this is your third book, and all three of them have been standalones with very, very specific areas, Mars, Moon, and to the space. Now, is there a reason why you don't have to, you, you've not written a series and you've written these as standalones? Do you have a series in mind? Because Jeff and I always have the series standalone question, but you're a little different because of your setting and your plots where maybe a series wouldn't really work but have you thought of maybe putting together like a series like a space series of like a team or whatever and going out is that something that might be on the horizon well it's absolutely something i i would like to do the martian you can't really make a sequel to that i mean right. it's like he got home what, what are you gonna do uh, the adventures of mark watney running out of beer and uh, well gilligan got off the island and then they ended up back that's true but it did it did screen it did strain credibility a little bit. Right. But um, so I really can't have a sequel to the Martian. Although a lot of right. people have sent me ideas and I, basically broadly speaking, like I could have Mark get in trouble again, which really strains credibility. I could have someone else be in trouble and Mark is part of the ground crew. And he's like, 
helping them out, right. but that's not satisfying. You want to see Mark doing his thing. And right. then finally, another thing would be a sort of a mid call, like um, they, the problems they have on, on Hermes returning from Mars. Cause it's like years past its service date. And so there's probably going to be a lot of things breaking down there, but it would just kind of be uninspiring, more of the same stuff, breaking down creative fixes. And also this time he has five extremely capable crewmates with him and constant communication with earth. It would just really lose something, you know, yeah. uh, Artemis, I wanted to write a bunch of books in that. I, I wanted Artemis to be my Ankh more pork. I wanted it to be my Discworld. Cool. you know, oh, I wanted, yeah. cool. I wanted my, my plan was to write a bunch of books and each one would have a different main character. So my next book was going to have Rudy, who is the cop in Artemis, be the main character and it'd be kind of a murder mystery. And like, I, I pitched it to my publisher and my publisher's like, nah. So <laughs> wow. After all the success, they were just like, no. Well, Artemis wasn't super successful. I mean, it was successful commercially, right? It got onto the New York Times bestseller list. Everybody made tons of money, but it's generally not considered anything near as good as the Martian. And so my editor was like, okay, Artemis is cool, but the novelty of it being a city on the moon will wear off. And now if you make a sequel, then you're just making a murder mystery. And that's not really what you do. And uh, you're not necessarily any good at it. <laughs> oh, ouch. <laughs> uh, my, my editor gives harsh truths. Um, okay. And so uh, it's a good point. Now, Project Hail Mary definitely uh, lends itself to sequels. Yeah. Um, so I might, I might, sequel in that direction or if enough time goes by i might come up with such a clever idea for an artemis sequel that it cannot be denied you know <laughs> exactly okay, um, cool interesting so i'm going to give you the question that you're going to solve the debate okay okay what is better star trek or star wars the answer is doctor who oh <laughs> you nailed us both <laughs> <laughs> nice okay that's good. that's good and you know what i just found the last night was i was just searching and i just found this new app called britbox now i didn't subscribe but they have all the doctor who's on there like oh, yeah. every doctor who yeah well i've like, seen cool. i've seen every doctor who ever made yeah okay except well i'm a star wars guy and, and except for the 108 episodes that the bbc lost permanently yeah I can't believe they taped over those. It just makes no sense to well, me. Well, they taped over some of them and they lost others in a fire. This was during an era of where TV was still considered sort of a, a poor man's, you know, theatrical production. It's mm -hmm. like the idea of saving the broadcast for posterity wasn't really considered. Were those the ones that were the black and white PBS ones that they lost? Well, none of them are PBS. I mean, PBS. PBS. Aired I, them. I mean, I saw PBS. I saw it on PBS. Yeah. When I was yeah. Um, there were a bunch of, uh, yeah, there are a bunch of episodes from the 60s and early 70s okay. that the BBC just straight up lost. Damn. And it's actually really cool the efforts that people go through to find them. So back in the late 60s and 70s, it turns out nerds were every bit as prevalent as we are now. And <laughs> yeah. so all of the audio tracks, for Doctor Who, for all of the lost episodes and everything, all of the audio tracks survive today because for every single episode of Doctor Who, there was at least one nerd taping it on a just an ordinary Good tape recorder. 
Yeah. Like not Nerds a video night, baby. But Nerds you know, an unite. audio tape recorder just pointing the microphone at the TV and go like, I shall have the audio to this episode of Doctor Who, which is exactly what I would have done if I'd been born a generation earlier. So hey, they have the original mix audio. Put the tape recorder next to the stereo and get the music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They recently recovered um uh an episode a serial, a six episode Doctor Who serial from a TV station in Algeria. They, the TV station in Algeria was going through their old stuff and cataloging it. And they found that they had this, this six episode serial of Doctor Who that they'd, that they, and it's in Arabic language, right? And they broadcast it back then. And then it's been sitting in a room collecting dust. And so they sent it back to BBC and it was one of the ones that BBC had lost. So now they had the, the video but not the audio because it was in Arabic, but they had the audio from nerds who'd recorded it. So they reassembled it and put it all together. And then, you know, Hey, it works. It worked. That's, that's it so works. awesome. Mm-hmm. It works. Well, one of the things I was talking to John about before you hopped on was um, when you love a book so much and you know, they're going to make a film of it. The film always disappoints, but the Martian was one of those rare exceptions where I re- love the movie equally well so why do you think that happened i they i I think i'm just very lucky they did a fantastic job on the film like i couldn't have asked for a better outcome i mean that was just crazy good and uh although i will point out i can think of at least one more film where the adaptation was very very good and very true to the book and that's um the green mile oh yeah absolutely i almost said misery Misery also. Well, that's because King is also like he I think he wrote the screenplay. Certainly wrote the screenplay for the Green Mile. I don't know if he wrote Misery, but wouldn't surprise me. He's good at screenplays. Yeah. um, Sometimes he's got some (laughs) weird stuff out there that's a little strange, but I'll give him credit on a lot of that. I thought that the shining TV show was ten times better than the movie. If you guys ever saw that. I've never I've never seen the shining TV show. Yeah, Rebecca D. Mornay and um God, was it Parker Stevenson was in that? Huh. It was uh, it was like a three episode it was like a three episode a miniseries Tim Daly or something like that. Yeah, and it was great because it because it showed how in The Shining, you know, how in the in the in the Stanley Kubrick version, it had Jack Nicholson as a crazy, crazy, crazy. But mm-hmm. in the TV one, it was like he wasn't really crazy, and it was how the love for his family at the end came about and everything else. And so it was much closer to the book than it was. And Stephen King did that one, and that was great. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. So now, are there any plans for Artemis or Project Hail Mary? Have they been optioned yet? Yeah, Artemis and both of them have been bought. Um, So Fox owns the rights to Artemis. MGM owns the rights to Project Hail Mary. Artemis is kind of in production, but it kind of stalled around COVID. They're still working on it. Um, We have a a Geneva Robertson Dvoret is a screenwriter, and she's working on the adaptation. She's actually made a few revs. And uh, it's gone back and forth. Uh, it's set to be directed by Lord and Miller, Phil Lord and oh, Chris Miller. Nice. And then um, also Project Hail Mary is also set to be directed by Phil Lord and Chris Miller. And we have Ryan Gosling attached to play Rylan Grace. Oh, nice. Yep. Go That's from Matt cool. Damon to Ryan Gosling. Good job. That's right. That's so good. <laughs> Which That's is so... actually super convenient because Ryan Gosling has the same initials as Ryland Grace, so he could maybe bring his cufflinks to set or something. Yeah. <laughs> and now, do you know, is this going to be a theatrical release or do you think it's going to go to a streaming service? It's because I know he's theatrical. doing the Gray Man. It's going to be theatrical. Cool. Yeah. Nice. They're not messing around. So now, and is the best place for everyone to find all the information out just going to your website, andywearauthor.com? Is that your that... best 
Wait. Not really. I mean, anywhereauthor.com is a great place to go to find out about upcoming like books or something that I'm making. It's it's purely professional site. It doesn't have like a news feed or anything like that. Honestly, you're better just keeping your ear to the ground and in in you know in do entertainment. A, do news. you have a newsletter for your fans or do you I, not? You know, I do, do you, not. I'm sorry. It's <laughs> okay. Do you now? Do you use any social media platforms? I do. I'm on Facebook and Twitter, and I use them just for my professional stuff. I don't talk about Same. any personal stuff there. Yeah, I don't show. And I answer all either. emails, by the way. So, like. I have a very public email address and you can find it very easily online. I could tell you now, but it's hard to spell and I don't want to take the time to spell it out, but um, you can find it easily online. And um, uh, I answer all emails. Nice. So you're not so days. many that I can't keep up with it. I'm not that big a big shot. Oh, shit. That's <laughs> well, not yet. Well, I'll tell you what, Andy, um, I think it's, it's been fabulous to speak with you for the first time here and have you on. I interviewed you for the magazine, but that was a Q&A that you answered. And so we weren't able to speak with you. But again, everybody, the book is called Project Hail Mary. And it comes out in, is it, is it June, right? No, it's, oh, it's already out. out. It's out. He's oh, on the bestseller right. list. Uh, you may uh, notice it's in the background of Jeff's. Kermit. <laughs> <laughs> It is. Yes. Kermit is reading it. And, yes. and I got the yes. finished copy, too. I just always forget the dates. And I'm just glad I pronounced your last name right, because I suck at last names. And that's that, we're rhyme, rhymes with beer. Yeah, we're, yeah, yeah. See, and <laughs> if you would have told me that, I probably would still would have screwed it up. But I'm glad I got that right. But hey, I mean, it's been a pleasure to have you. Wish you nothing but the best and continued success. Can't wait to see you got come up in the future. But uh, you're not going to be on a four year every year book thing, right? Is it going to be every four years a book? Are you going to try to? Well, I mean, that? it's not a specific schedule. That's just kind of how it <laughs> turned out. I, I so will your publisher admit, I doesn't kind of, have you on a specific schedule. Then. I'm kind of slow. I will admit. <laughs> okay. I'm sure my editor okay. would love it if I could crank them out a little faster. But uh, it is what yeah. it is. It just means like it's said, quality. That's, That's right. right. I mean, you are the Eric Larson in space where you got to get the book right until it comes and it's going to come out because, you know, Eric Larson puts one out every four or five years because the research is so heavy. So, but thank you again so much, man. It's been a pleasure. Keep All it right, going. Man. Always great to see you. Thanks. All right. Take care.